Uh, thank you so much for that wonderful singing. Man, I, I love our time of worship. I love singing songs that just speak of the, uh, the wonder and the awe of God. And our, our God is amazing. Our Savior is amazing. And um, it's, just, it's just an awesome time to, to worship Him. Well, this morning, we uh, are, are privileged to have with us um, a good friend of mine, uh, someone that I've known uh, for a long, I think I've known him longer than he's probably known me. Uh, when I was in uh, Bible college, his dad was the vice president there, and, um, and there's probably, I don't know, like a six-year gap, seven-year gap between me and him, and so I, I remember him in junior high, and uh, I think maybe my... No, you still weren't in high school, I think, by the time I graduated. And, uh, and then we connected again when he uh, graduated college, and uh, he was traveling with uh, what they have, uh, these prayer uh, or worship teams that go around uh, the country and talk a little bit about the college. And he was a leader for one of them, and we connected again uh, during that time. And uh, since then, we've, uh, we've become friends, and uh, he's been an encouragement to me. Uh, he's been a great help in my life with the messages that he's preached, and um, I've, I've had opportunity, at least in the years past, he, uh, he goes to camp and preaches the teen weeks there, and, uh, and, and his messages there at camp have always been a, a blessing to me, and so um, it's just been awesome to know uh, Eric, by the way, I didn't say his name, Eric Getch is his name, and uh, his, uh, his wife Lexa was going to be with, uh, with him this, this week and was not able to. Uh, they've got uh, two, uh, two kids, uh, one named Mason, who's uh, six, I want to say, Logan's uh, three, and, uh, and one very, very, very close on the way. His wife's about 39 weeks pregnant, so, uh, uh, so this will be his last week um, on the road, and, uh, and then hopefully get back in time uh, before Alexa has her baby, and, uh, but I'm just so thrilled that... Uh, uh, he would spend a Sunday with us. He came in a day early because uh, he is preaching the teen camp this week, and he came in a day early so he could be with us, and, and I appreciate that, uh, Eric. I really do love you as a friend, and whatever the Lord's laid on your heart, Eric, if you would, come and share it with us this morning. Let's welcome him today. Amen. Amen. I'm excited to be here this morning and uh, thankful that you're able to join us. And uh, it truly is a blessing. I always enjoy my time with the Mendoza family, and uh, I... Um, I am looking forward to a good week of camp, and uh, yeah, I wanted my whole family to come. In fact, when I uh, booked the meeting, I said, yep, and we're all coming, because I just love coming to this place, and I want my family around this place, and, uh, and then, uh, well, then we, we had a baby, or we're having a baby, and so, uh, and uh, this one's been a little bit different than the other ones, and so my wife has just been advised not to travel at all right now, and so she is... Um, well, she is home, and uh, she did not want to have, as much as we love this place, we did not want to have our baby in Texas. So um, anyways, so it's good to see you this morning. Would you take your Bible, go to the book of Job, the book of Job, an Old Testament book this morning, the book of Job. Job should be right before the book of Psalms, and uh, Job, as you turn there, you should know that you are turning to perhaps the earliest written book in our Bible, at least it's certainly set 
uh, before most of the other texts are. Uh, Job is set around the same time as the patriarchs. So if you want to think about it this way, Job is as far on the before side of Christ as we are on the after side of Christ. So this is a really ancient text. And yet, despite its age, I think we find uh, very few books that are more relevant than the book of Job for our time of need. And so I want to look at Job chapter 1 this morning, and uh, I really want to get to the last three verses of Job, but in order for it to make sense, we got to read through the entire chapter. So stay with me, uh, stay engaged. I'll stop along the way, kind of explain uh, what some of these uh, words mean in the Hebrew, and then, uh, and then we'll get to the last three verses and get real practical, okay? Can we do that? We ready? Okay, awesome. I know. It's, we got hot dogs tonight. It's going to be awesome. I, I can't... There's very few things I enjoy more than life than hot dogs and fireworks, okay? So I am, I'm pumped tonight, okay? Look at verse number one. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect. The Hebrew here has the idea of, of complete, of mature, spiritual ma- maturity. And then he's upright. That word means that he seeks to do the right thing no matter what the circumstances are, okay? So he's, he's spiritually mature. He's seeking to do the right thing. He's one that feared God. Anytime we see this word fear, typically in scripture, there's two Hebrew words we use for the word fear. Typically what we see in relation to one fearing God is one holding, holding God in holy reverence. In other words, they are, they are so captivated by God that it creates this tremble in their heart when they come before him. So he has this, this high view of God. And then this word eschewed evil. Now we don't use the word eschewed anymore, but it has more than the idea of just turning away from evil. And the Hebrew, most Hebrew words have a picture attached to it. And the Hebrew picture attached to this word eschewed is to put, a, is to put out a fire. So he's not just uh, turning away from the fire of evil. He's actively trying to put out the fires of evil. And right off the bat, we have an amazing testimony from our guy named Job. He's spiritually mature. He is seeking to do the right thing. He is holding God in high regard, and he is putting out the evil in his day. He is a spiritual man. In verse number two, we find out he's a blessed man, for there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance was also 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she asses in a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Okay, now the Bible is kind of uh, painting a picture here through uh, literary cues that we kind of miss in our Western point of view because we view numbers as um, quantitative, right? And you're like, yes, that is what numbers are. They are quantitative, right? They have value, right? Yes. But in an Eastern mindset, a number has more than just a quantitative value. It has a qualitative value that there is a, that, that certain numbers co- uh, uh, communicate quality. So like in their mind, like we hear uh, the equation five, Five plus two equals seven, but in a Hebrew mindset, they would view five books of Torah plus the two tablets of Moses equal the seven days of creation. That's kind of how their mind would work, and then they would wrestle with what that all means, and I don't even know what that means, so uh, wrestle away, okay? But, but, but certain numbers held certain values, and when it came to a number like 10, well, that was like abundance. That was living in excess. That was like you are blessed beyond measure, and so what the, what the author's doing here very intensely 
intentionally is he's saying, Job's got 10 kids. He has 10,000 cattle. He has 1,000 animal workforce. Like what he's just trying to say here in very simple terms is like in every way possible, Job's a perfect 10. Like Job's got life made. He is the greatest man in all of the East. He's spiritual. He's blessed. Look at verse number four. It says, and his sons went and feasted in their, in their houses, everyone his day. And they sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. So we find that not only is he a spiritual man, and not only is he a blessed man, but he's also a family man. He's a guy that cares deeply about his family. He is praying for them. He is offering burnt sacrifices towards them. He is, he is actively involved in their life. What a testimony from our guy named Job. We'll just skip down to verse number 13. We'll come back to verses 6 through 12 perhaps in a moment. Verse number 13, it says, and there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them and the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, the fire of God has fallen from heaven and has burnt up the sheep and, and, I only, and the servants and consumed them and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, the Chaldeans made about three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose, and he rent his mantle, and he shaved his head, and he fell down upon the ground and worshiped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job sinned not, nor charge God foolishly. Have you, ever had, have, you, have you ever had a bad day? No, no, like a really bad day. Like one of those days where you woke up and just things started going wrong instantly. And like just when you thought, like just when you thought, well, at least things couldn't get any worse. They got like 10 times worse. You ever been there? You ever have a day where you wish life was just like a video game and you could just hit reset on the whole thing? Like, let's just, let's try that again. Let's, let's start over. Yeah, I think we've all had days like that. In fact, I brought somebody to help me illustrate what kind of day I'm talking about. It's called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I like this book. This book does good for my soul. One of the best books on theology I've ever read right here. Probably the only one, to be honest with you. It says, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running. And I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. 
At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box. And Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said that if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm gonna get car sick. I could tell it was gonna be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day because no one even answered. At school, Mrs. Dickens liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. At singing time, she said I sang too loud. At counting time, she said I left out 16. Who needs 16? I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, very bad day. I could tell because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said that Philip Parker was his best friend and that Albert Moho was his next best friend and that I was only his third best friend. I hope you sit on a tack, I said to Paul. I hope the next time you get a double-decker strawberry ice cream cone, the ice cream part falls off the cone part and lands in Australia. There were two cupcakes in Philip Parker's lunch bag and guess whose mother forgot to put in his dessert? It was a terrible horrible, no good, very bad day. That's what it was because after school, my mom took us all to the dentist and Dr. Fields found a cavity just in me. Come back next week and I'll fix it, he said. Next week, I'm moving to Australia. On the way downstairs, the elevator door closed on my foot and while we were waiting for my mom to go get the car, Anthony made me fall where it was muddy and when I started crying because of the mud, Nick said I was a crybaby and while I was punching Nick for calling me a crybaby, my mom came back and scolded just me for being muddy and fighting. I am having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I told everybody. No one even answered. There were lima beams for dinner. I hate limas. There was kissing on TV. I hate kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep and the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony and not with me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says some days are like that, even in Australia. You ever have a day like that? You ever identify with my man Alexander where it just seems like, yeah, that was terrible. That was horrible. That was no good, very bad day. Yeah, I think we've all had days we could summarize like that. And yet, no matter how bad your day has been, I can almost say with certainty, none of us have had a day quite as horrible, quite as terrible, quite as no good, quite as very bad as Job in chapter number one. In a matter of moments, Job goes from the greatest man in all the East to the biggest sob story this world has ever known. I like what one commentator said, the book of Job is really five verses of joy and 40-something chapters of sorrow. Not much goes well for the man named Job. And what the book of Job illustrates for us is that while sometimes our problems in life are natural problems, an enemy taking from us or, or a loved one betraying us, Sometimes our problems also are supernatural, a whirlwind 
of fire. But, but whether our problems be natural or whether our problems be supernatural, the book of Job makes it clear that our enemy is always the same. For before Job's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, there's another day recorded in Job chapter number one. It's found in verses six through 12, and we won't take himself before God. And God asks the devil, what are you doing? And the devil says, well, I'm doing what I'm always doing. I'm walking about to and fro, seeking whom I may devour. I'm looking for my next victim. I'm looking for the next person I'm going to attack, the next person I'm going to aim my fiery dart at. And God says, well, have you considered my servant Job, who's perfect and upright, one who fears God and eschews evil? And the devil laughs. He says, no, I haven't considered Job of course, Job serves you. Job would never abandon you. You've provided this hedge of protection around Job. You've given him all of, the, all, of that, all of that wealth and all of that blessing. Of course, Job loves you. But if you took that stuff away, well, Job would curse you to your face. And God says, you better get ready to eat them words. He says, go ahead, touch all that he hath, only touch not his life, and see what takes place. Then... There was a day that Job had this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And the question of Job becomes, or the, the reality of Job becomes, that our lives will not be measured by how many bad days we have, nor will our lives be measured by how bad our days get. Our lives will be measured by how we respond to the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. Can I ask you this morning, how do you respond when things don't go your way? When things go wrong, when things go bad, when there's a trial or a storm that hits, when there's a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, how do you respond? Oh, maybe there's a lesson we can learn from Job, who's experiencing a far worse day than I've ever had, responds in a way that proves the thesis for his life, that he was perfect and upright, one who feared God and one who eschewed evil. Would you notice quickly with me this morning, just three, three responses of the life of Job, three responses to a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day. First of all, we notice Job responds in realignment. He responds in realignment. So look at verse number 20. The Bible says then. Well, then when? Well, after the last messenger has spoken his last word of bad news, right? That's when, okay? So everyone's still standing there. These four guys who have talked right over each other, all the text messages, all the emails are dinging at the same time. Like, this is bad news. Everything has just been stripped away from Job. Then Job arose and he rent his mantle, he shaved his head, and he fell down upon the ground. Now, all three of these things, the rending of the mantle, the shaving of the head, and the falling prostrate on the ground, all of these things are uh, symbols of grief. They, they are signs of inward emotion. In other words, when, when, when words couldn't capture how you felt, well, you would rend your clothes or you would, you would shave your head or you'd fall straight on the ground just, just lying there. And the idea what was to show that you were helpless, that, that you were in grieving, that you were in mourning. Uh, many, many times they're going to roll around in, in sackcloth and ashes to identify themselves with the very dust they were formed with. And the idea here is that Job is saying, this is 
difficult for me. Like notice, Job's first response is not, well, praise the Lord. Ain't that just dandy? Wow, God truly is good. You know, Job's first response is, this is tough. This is difficult. This is not what I was expecting. My heart is breaking. The world around me is crushing me. I wasn't expecting this. I'm in deep, 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 deep suffering. Everything in my body wants to respond in anger, wants to respond in bitterness, wants to go into a dark place of depression. But notice, this doesn't end in a woe is me pity party for Job. For the end of verse number 20 says that he falls down upon the ground and he worshiped. In other words, Job is saying, despite how difficult this is for me, despite the world crashing around me, I want to make sure that you know God is still worthy in my life. He is still worthy of my attention. He is still worthy of my worship. He is still worthy of my gaze. In other words, what Job is saying is, Lord, this is not what I was expecting, but I know you hold the future. I know the whole world is in your hands. So God, if you've got a plan for this, I will trust in you. What a response. For most times when things go wrong in our life, our first question is, what's up, God? Whose side are you on? I thought you were supposed to be on my side. I thought you were supposed to have my back. You know, maybe instead of wondering whose side God's on in trials, we should wonder whose side we're on in the trial. And we should realign our ways to the thinking of God. See, so many times in our lives, when, when, when the trials of life hit, when, when the storms blow, well, we, we have the tendency to steer off into the ditch. We let circumstances skew our, our view of the character of God, and we skew off into a ditch, or we, or, we, or we turn off on the other side, and Job is just saying, Lord, I need you to help me here. I need you to show me your path. I need you to teach me your ways. I need you to lead me in thy path. It's kind of like what the psalmist says in Psalms 139 when he says, uh, search me and try me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in thy way everlasting. In other words, he says, I, I don't want to be in control here. Because if I'm in control, I'm going to respond in bitterness. I'm going to respond in anger. I'm going to respond in distress. But Lord, I want you to control my response. I want to be aligned to your path in my life. I love the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was this smart dude. Like he's, he's gra- he graduated magnum cum laude, right? Like he's massively smart. He studied under the Rabbi Gamala. Paul had an open door, an open invitation to any synagogue in the Greco-Roman world to go teach in. Like he is astute as can be. And yet when he writes, he writes to people on the bottom shelf. And I like that because he graduated magnum cum laude. I graduated magnum cum lucky, okay? And so I like the bottom shelf stuff. And Paul in Romans chapter 8 is preaching a message. I don't know what his title is. I'm not good at titles, but if I made a title for his message in Romans 8, it would be things we know about life. And he gives his first point in Romans 8, 22, when he says, we know that that the whole earth groaneth and travaileth in pain. In other words, that's Paul's scriptural way of saying life stinks. Life is tough. Like we know life is 
difficult. Point number one, life stinks. But in point number two, in Romans 8, 28, he says, for we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of God's son. Okay, so so what's he saying? He says, well, point number one, life is hard. But point number two, God is good. And because God's good, he's going to take all the pain, all the suffering, all of our groaning, and he's going to work those things together for good. You say, well, what good could possibly come from you fill in the blank this morning? Like, what good could come from that? Well, he tells you in Romans 8, 29. He says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his son. The ultimate good that God is trying to work together in your life is to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. Like God desperately wants you to look more like Jesus. And so sometimes you'll go through some storms to wash away the parts of your life that don't look like Christ. Sometimes you'll go through some fires to burn the imperfections away so that you can come out more refined, looking more like your Savior. By the way, I believe with all my heart, Job understood this long before there was ever a Bible, long before there was ever a Paul. I believe Job understood this about his God because what's the most well-known verse in Job? He knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job said, I'm coming through this more refined. I'm coming through this more precious. I'm going to look more like what God wants me to look. And so I say all that to say this, don't waste your bad days. Don't spend your whole trial wishing it was over. No, no, no. Find, find, find your inner worship and say, God, what is it that you're trying to point out in my life? in an area that I can become more like Christ. A response, a response of realignment. Would you notice, secondly, though, a response of recognition? So verse 20 is Job's first actions. Verse 21 is Job's first words. So look what he says. He says, and said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, first of all, what wisdom? Because Job is essentially saying what, again, Paul is going to tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 6, 7, when he says, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is for certain we can carry nothing out. So he said, man, I came in with nothing. I'm going to leave with nothing. But then he has this statement where he says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, listen, that's a real easy statement to say when the Lord's been giving, right? Like, man, the Lord gives, man, and he is given in abundance, you know? But let's just be honest. The Lord hasn't done a whole lot of giving in this chapter. Oh, the Lord's been doing a lot of taking. The Lord has taken just about everything that labeled Job a blessed man. It's gone. And yet, Job is able to say at the end of this, blessed Oh, how happy am I. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What a weird response. Like, Job, you're not supposed to respond in contentment here. You're supposed to respond in covetousness. You're supposed to to be saying, God, you've taken. So now, Lord, it's your responsibility to give. Lord, I need this. And Lord, I need that. And Lord, I need this. But that's not how Job responds. See, Job understands 
that his happiness isn't rooted in his 401k. He understood his happiness wasn't rooted in the corner office or the job promotion. His, 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 his happiness wasn't rooted in the picture Instagram-worthy family, right? No, his happiness wasn't rooted in what he had. His happiness was rooted in who he had. Let's find the common denominator. You ready? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What's the common denominator in those three statements? The Lord. And Job said, listen, you can take away my things. You can take away my money. You can even take away my family. But you will never take away my relationship with God. And my friends, you ought to be encouraged this morning that while the world can take a lot away from you, they can try to strip your freedoms. They can try to strip your, your, your individuality. They can try to strip who you are as a person away. They can try to strip the truth away from you. Guess what? They will never strip away the blood that Jesus shed to buy your freedom. They will never strip away your relationship that you have with God through Jesus Christ. For that was paid for on the cross of Calvary by the Son of God, by the Word of God, giving His life for you. <coughs> and so our response this morning ought not be to the things of this life, man, give me, give me, give me. Our response ought to be in contentment this morning. You say, well, what, what is covetousness? What, what is contentment? I think a good passage that puts it all together is Hebrews chapter number 13, where, where the writer says, let not your conversation, well, that word means your lifestyle, let, let, not, let not the way you live be filled with covetousness. So covetousness is this idea that, um, well, when things go wrong, well, we're just going to pack, pack up and move to Australia, right? Like, like, like if I was somewhere else, things would be better. If I had something else, things would be better. If I was someone else, things would be better. It's this, it's this, false, it's this false idea that, that if I just had this, then I would be happy. It's always the, it's the carrot dangling at the end of the stick on the treadmill right? It's this idea that, that with more or with, with, with the next thing, you'll be good. And so, so, so the writer of Hebrews is warning us. He's saying, hey, don't let your life be filled with covetousness, but be content with such things as you have. Now, man, a lot of preachers stop the verse right there and they start talking about how like, see, God just wants you to be content this morning. Like, I know you live in a, a house that has a hole in the roof and the sun just beats down on your head in the summer, but you just gotta be content with that. I know, I saw you, you pulled in on three wheels this morning. You got fumes in the gas tank and you can't afford any more. So you just gotta be content with that. Listen, can I say, like, th th that might all be true, but if you're gonna take a verse out of context, can we at least take the whole verse out of context? Because that's not even where the verse ends, okay? There's more to the verse. He says, be content with such things as you have, colon, colon. And then he says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the colon's important because the colon is about to list some things that you have to be content with, right? So he says, listen, be content with such things as you have. Well, what do I have to be content with? For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake In other words, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, you can be content in whatsoever state you are in. Why? Because you have the promise of the presence of God in your life. You have him. And with him, you can be content. Listen, can I just say, when you get to a point where you realize Jesus is all you need, then you'll be content when Jesus is all you have. That's where Job is at this moment. He's got nothing 
but God. And that's enough to fuel his contentment. And so we've got this lesson of realignment, this response of recognition. Then notice finally a response of reverence. We've already looked at both of these words. I just want to kind of point out the absurdity that it is we find them in this text, okay? So at the end of verse number 20, it says that he worships. And at the end of verse 21, he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Sorry, camera guys. I have a problem with wandering. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Forgot. We're trying to live stream to the thousands, the millions and millions. Okay. Anyways. Sorry, okay. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So we've got this worship and we have this word blessed, okay? Both these words communicate this idea that God is worthy. God is uh, the source of my joy. Now, now listen, 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 listen. In the midst of Job's greatest burden, he intentionally chooses to bless the Lord twice. In both his word and his actions, he's making sure everybody there understands that despite the troubles he has faced, he's not holding God responsible. No, no, in fact, he's overjoyed with his God. Nobody left that room thinking, well, Job's angry at God. In fact, that's why at the end we say in all this, Job sin not, nor charge God foolishly. He held God in high reverence. Now, can I just be honest this morning? I'll be honest so you don't have to be, okay? When, when I have good things going on in my life, I can barely remember to thank the Lord for them. Like, you know that song, Count Your Blessings? Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Yeah, it surprises me every time. Every time I, like, intentionally sit down and count how good God's been in my life. Man, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by the goodness of God. So, so if I struggle to remember to praise him for the good things in life, well, then chances are good when the struggles come, my first response is not to praise the Lord. And by the way, we're not talking about like, you know, flat tire on the side of the highway, get out of the car. Well, praise the Lord. That's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about sincere worship and praise this morning. Can I tell you, while that might not be our first response, it ought to be our sole response. That truly is how God wants you to respond to the storms of life. He wants you to respond in a way where you are blessing his holy name. Can we turn to one passage of scripture and we'll be done this morning? Go to first, uh, I'm sorry, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm gonna look at the apostle Paul again. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. <coughs> and Paul is uh, writing to the church of Corinth <coughs> and he is uh, talking to them about this thorn in the flesh that he has. He says in verse number seven, he says, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, we could probably sit here all day and talk about what the thorn in the flesh is. In fact, if you uh, read 10 different scholars, you'll get 40 different answers to what the thorn in the flesh could be. And that's not a joke. Like the theories are vast and wild. And I have gone down that rabbit hole and I've come to the conclusion that if it mattered what the thorn in the flesh was, Paul would have told us. The point is not what it was. The point is that it was there and that it, was, that it mattered to Paul. 
This was painful. This was difficult for him. And he says, for this thing, I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. Now that word thrice indicates some, some length of time, that there were these seasons of prayer and fasting for this thorn to be removed from his life. In other words, Paul says, listen, Lord, I don't care what it is. I don't care how it got here. I don't care what its job is, whether it's to humble me or whether it's being used to buffet me. He says, God, I just want it gone. Just get it out of my life. And the Lord answers. Aren't you thankful the Lord answers? You know, better be careful. Because the Lord answers in verse number nine. It says, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. Well, wow, that's inspirational. Paint it on a Hobby Lobby sign and sell it to my mom, you know? Man, that's powerful. My grace is sufficient for thee. Yeah, if you're not the one with the thorn. But if you're the one with the thorn, then my grace is sufficient for thee. Kind of sounds like a half-hearted answer. Like, okay, and? Like, because your grace is sufficient, you're going to? And by the way, there is more. For some reason, it doesn't make it on the front of the Hobby Lobby sign. You got to look on the back to see it. But it says, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Ew. Like, no thank you. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to get to a spot of weakness. Like, no, Lord, just take the thorn away. Can I just be honest with you? My response to this is like, uh, no thanks. But that's not how Paul responds. Paul responds by saying, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. In other words, Paul says, well, if that's the result, well, forget the thorn. He says, bring on the persecutions and bring on the beatings and bring on the shipwrecks. And I'm like, Paul, shut up, man. God's going to hear you. What are you talking about, man? That's be honest with you, for years, for years, this verse, these verses were something I knew here, but I didn't know here. And to be honest with you, I never wanted to know here. Like, no thanks. But in 2019, my son Logan was born, and we found out uh, post-birth that he had a diagnosis of Down syndrome. That he was born with uh, 21 chromosomes. Now, we didn't know much about Down syndrome at the time. We certainly had heard of the term, and we certainly knew people that, was that, that, that were born with Down syndrome, but we didn't know the effects other than some of the you know, superficial effects that you kind of just noticed right away. And so we started Googling. And I tell you, I'm thankful for the internet, but sometimes the internet's the most discouraging, like they're almost as discouraging as Christians, okay? Like <laughs> you look at the internet and it starts showing you problems with Down syndrome, 75% uh, of kids born with Down syndrome will have some sort of hearing defect within their life. About 50% of kids with Down syndrome will have a heart disorder that will require surgery within the first year of life. One out of every 50 children born with Down syndrome will have, will have childhood leukemia. Well, I don't know a lot about Down syndrome, but I do know a lot about leukemia, and now I'm getting scared. And then you read articles that like up until like 1980, the average life expectancy for a child with Down syndrome was only 26 years old. Well, that's not all that long ago. And then, then you start even digging deeper and you find some hope because you read things like Iceland has eliminated Down syndrome. And you're like, whoa, let's figure out how to do that. Oh, 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 oh. Got it, got it. They've just kind of learned how to detect it. And even sometimes when they don't detect it, if it's born and they find Down syndrome, yeah, no thanks. I see, 
you know, I, I just got to say my, my peace, that, that inner peace you have when you're holding your child, well, it was disrupted quite heavily by the circumstances of life. And I found myself in a dark hole of depression. And, and to keep a long story short, it took us two months to actually get a diagnosis. They suspected, but they wouldn't run tests, and eventually they finally ran a test, and they had to send it to three different hospitals to actually get a full diagnosis. And in the meantime, we found, like, we could tell. Like, Logan was born with Down's, like, we, we knew. And so what was difficult was that we couldn't get his heart checked. We couldn't get his white blood cell count checked. We couldn't get his hearing even checked until we had a diagnosis. And so until we had that diagnosis, we were just left in this waiting game. We couldn't get therapy started. We couldn't, I mean, it was just... It was a mess, and it was difficult. And, and the internet wasn't helpful, and the church wasn't helpful, because you'd go to church, and you'd hear people say, well, brother, God's trying to teach you something through this. It's like, well, hey, that's great. Can, can God teach me and leave my son alone? Like, I, just so you know, that's not how God works. That's my, you might think that is how it works. Like, you might have been told that. That's bad advice. Because people don't know Scripture, and they certainly don't know God. God doesn't torture other people to teach you a lesson. It was difficult. So, like, I didn't even want to go to church because, like, you know you're going to hear, like, the, like, well, you know, God gives special kids to special parents. Whoa, wow, I feel real special right now. Thank you. Uh, You know, some of them are just angels unaware. Well, if Logan's an angel, he certainly is unaware of it. Like, let me just tell you, he does not know terror <laughs> maybe a demon underwear but it was difficult and on that sunday morning we got the diagnosis uh well the, the confirmation we were driving to church and i remember putting my hand on my wife's thigh and i prayed because that's what you do as a christian father and i said some words that just probably hit the cloud and bounced back you know and i think my wife could tell i was struggling i think everyone could tell i was struggling and i never forget, my, my wife just kind of spoke some life into me that morning. She said, Eric, God's got this. And she said these words, never forget that when we're weak, God gives us his strength. I'm like, I don't know how to explain it, but like in that moment, as we were at that red light, suddenly the grace of God was sufficient for me. It was like the, the, the dark clouds just kind of separate and the, the sun was out. The breeze like hit the face. You know, I found out that God doesn't give hypothetical grace. Like he doesn't give grace for the what ifs. Like, well, what if this happens? And what if he ends up with this? And what if that? What I have found that God gives you grace in the even ifs of life. That even if this is the case, God's grace will show up. God's grace will be there. And I can I just tell you, I stand here, Logan's now three years old. We're expecting our third child probably coming this week. And man, I'm just telling you, I'm thankful for Down syndrome. Down syndrome has taught me more about God than any theologian ever could. Down syndrome has taught me how to be a better father. 
I intentionally teach my other son to be kind to people, even though they might be different than him. The Down syndrome has taught me how to value all people, regardless of what they look like or what their abilities are. God's grace has been so overwhelming in our marriage. Our marriage has been healed. We we, we used to never pray together. Now, man, there's hardly a day that goes by that we're not asking God and begging God for for his grace in our lives because we, we realize we are weak. We are broken. We don't measure up. And yet God abundantly shares his grace upon us. Logan has taught, has taught me what it means to persevere through difficulty. Logan has low muscle tone, which means it requires him to work 10 times harder to put on muscle than it does for you. So random activities like lifting your head, that doesn't take much at all for you to do. But every time Logan does it, it's extreme effort he's exerting. And I've watched Logan learn how to walk and take bumps and bruises. And every time, not complain, not throw up his hands and want to quit like I would. But he just does it. He's a fighter. And he taught me what it looks like to fight for a walk with God. Logan has made me a better Christian. He's made me more empathetic to the world around me. He's softened my heart to difficulties. He's given me an, a, an eye to, to the see that there's a lot going on beneath the surface in most people's lives. And so, so I'm trying to tell you this morning is that the call for us this morning is not to sit around and say, well, let's talk about our bad, like you think that's a story. Let me tell you what happened to me. Like I'm sure you can one-up that. My difficulties are very, very slim. Can I just say that's really not the goal here. The goal is not to get us all around and sing kumbaya because life is so difficult. The goal is for us to ask ourselves intentionally, how are we responding to difficulties? Does it look anything like Job? If not, may I say we have some work to do this morning? We have some work to do this morning. Respond correctly. Respond like Job. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that no matter how bad the days get, no matter how dark the night becomes, you're still on your throne, you're still in control, and you are still worthy of our worship. Lord, I don't know the stories that are represented in the room. I don't know the difficulties that people are facing. And Lord, I don't need to know. Because Lord, you know. You know. You know what's behind the smiles this morning. You know the heartbreak this morning. You know the pain that some of us are bearing this morning. And Lord, I'm so thankful that we have a book of Psalms that tells us we can come to you and we can lament towards you. We, we, can, we can cry bitterly unto you. And Lord, you meet us there in our sorrow. You meet us in our weakness and you give us your strength. Lord, may we be overwhelmed by your by your grace this morning. May we, re, may we realign, may we recognize, and may we adore you for who you are. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. This time is for you. As the piano continues playing, Maybe the Holy Spirit was speaking to you. Maybe you're going through a difficult time in your marriage or family or work or just you in your personal life. And what God has spoken to you about 
bringing you bringing you to a decision. You just want to say, Pastor, would you pray for me? Because I need to respond that way. That's not been my response. Would you just pray for me that I can make that response? If that's your decision, would you just raise your hand? I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to say anything else other than to pray for you. God bless you. Anyone else said, just pray for me, Pastor. God bless you. I see those hands. God bless you. I'm just going to let the piano play for a minute or so as we ask God to help responses to him when life is difficult. Father, this morning we thank you that in the difficulties of life that you've shown us there's a way to respond. There's a way to receive strength when we're weak. There's a way to really focus our lives on what really matters. Father, there's there's a presence that is with us that is a comfort and does what nothing else and no one else can do. Thank you. Thank you for being a God that does allow those bad days to come. And as we were challenged this morning in the message, help us not to waste them. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to respond wisely in those days. Father, we can't do it alone. We can't do it in our power. We need the filling of your strength and the leading of your spirit. So we ask for that today. The decision has been made, Father, by many of us to respond right. So now help us to do that. Help us to apply it and to live it out this week. And I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.